0: Welcome to the 10th episode of the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we hear a Republican view on U.S. policy towards Iran. We take a look at both President Trump's maximum pressure policy on Iran in the past four years, and also President Obama's engagement and the nuclear deal, or the JCPOA. We also take a look at the future or the prospects of U.S.-Iran engagement under a second Trump term or if Joe Biden enters the White House. My guest today is Michael Singh, the managing director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy here in Washington, D.C., He served in the Bush administration as the National Security Council's Senior Director for Middle East Affairs from 2005 to 2008. He also served as Special Assistant to Secretaries of State Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell and as a Middle East advisor to Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. Michael, welcome to the Iran Podcast.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Thanks for being here. Let's start from the news of the the recent news of this week. Just this Friday, there was a, a fairly unprecedented um, vote at the U.N. Security Council. Uh, the United States was trying to extend an arms embargo on Iran. And uh, the Trump administration has been working on this for weeks now, but the result of the vote, as we all saw Friday night, was basically only two votes for, including one of the U.S., and the other one was the Dominican Republic. Two voted against Russia and China, obviously, and then 11 abstained of the 15-nation council. So basically, the U.S.'s closest allies in Europe, France, Germany, U.K., and the other members of the uh, Security Council didn't get on board uh, with this um, extension or the resolution they were bringing forth to the Security Council. Why do you think that happened the way it
1: did? Well, I think the resolution was expected to fail, frankly because the expiration of the arms embargo against Iran is part of the Iran nuclear agreement that was signed in 2015 it uh, uh, and for the most part other countries besides the United States are still committed to implementing that agreement and so even those countries like the UK France Germany maybe some others on the council who who frankly aren't excited about the arms embargo expiring because they do have concerns Uh, the same concerns Washington has about Iran's regional policies, um, decided that the more important priority for them was to preserve the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement. Um, As I said, this was really the expected result. And in many ways, what was happening at the Security Council over this past week was really more about shaping the narrative. Who would be isolated? Would the U.S. be isolated or would Russia and China be isolated? And in the end, it was the United States uh, that stood nearly alone.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so let's step back a little bit from Justice Security Council and take a look at the Trump administration's policy towards Iran in the past three or four years. The administration has pursued a policy of maximum pressure campaign. The president pulled out of the nuclear deal, the JCPOA that you mentioned, and um, he reimposed sanctions back on Iran, while also along the way, basically the whole time, saying that he wants a better deal with Iran. Do you think this policy, the maximum pressure policy, the way the Trump administration is using it, has achieved any? Any of its
1: goals? So, I think that what it has had is it has had a major effect on Iran. It's uh, been economically devastating for Iran. Um, And I think this has surprised some people. It surprised people, I think, just how much impact US sanctions could have unilaterally. And that's something that I think will affect future policymakers. But I don't think that we've seen progress towards the ultimate objective of the policy. And that is, as you said, accomplishing a new deal or at least a new negotiation uh, between the United States and Iran. Nor have we really seen it change Iran's regional policies or constrain Iran's regional behavior in a very significant way. Uh, And it obviously hasn't yet destabilized the regime either. So whatever your objective, it hasn't gotten there yet. Now, I think what the Trump administration would say uh, is they would underline the yet part. Um, Obviously, President Trump is hoping for a second term, and and he clearly believes uh, that it will pay dividends in that second term.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Um we I want to talk about the second term a little bit later but let's talk about uh, your views you were an advisor you worked in a in the Bush administration before and I know you were one of the critics of the nuclear deal of the JCPOA in um that was made under the Obama administration what are your main basically what's the problem with the deal what are your criticisms of the deal Well
1: I think the main criticism of the deal was that it just didn't do enough, that that at the end of the day, um, for the Iranians, I think the Iranians were trying both to preserve the nuclear gains they had made, um, and I would say the option for having a nuclear weapon in the future, and get sanctions relief. It seems to me that the United States objective should have been to force Iran to choose between those things, to either have the the nuclear weapons weapons option, or to have the sanctions relief. But at the end of the day, the JCPOA allowed Iran to have both. And so in a sense, Iran prevailed uh, in the JCPOA negotiations, because Iran ultimately kept all the ingredients that it would need to make a nuclear weapon. It kept its uranium enrichment infrastructure, um, and in fact, was able to perfect or improve upon that infrastructure by putting into place better centrifuges. It kept all of the sort of pieces of its weapon uh, research program. And of course, that's now come to the fore Uh, In recent months uh, with the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and Iran was able to preserve its missile program and also, under the agreement, be allowed to advance its missile program. Well, those are the three ingredients of a nuclear weapon. Iran didn't really have to give up any of them. Instead, all it had to do was submit to inspections uh, and some constraints on those things while receiving comprehensive sanctions relief. And for me, that's a good deal for Iran. It wasn't uh, something that accomplished the initial objectives of the United States.
0: If you were advising President Trump, he's been saying that he wants a new deal with Iran, he wants a better deal. What would this new deal, in, in your advice, look like with Iran? Well, President Trump, has
1: said, President Trump has said he wants a comprehensive agreement with Iran. And obviously, Secretary Pompeo then uh, gave some detail to that by laying out uh, 12 specific demands that the United States has of Iran. I think all of those demands, frankly, are reasonable demands. They're things like ending support for terrorism and so forth. But I don't think that we're going to get all of them into one deal. I don't think a comprehensive deal between the United States and Iran is possible. And frankly, I think it wouldn't be in the U.S. interest to sit down with Iran and try to negotiate over all uh, the issues in the region. I think that actually would, uh, ironically, perhaps increase Iran's prestige and profile. I think what we need is a stronger nuclear agreement if we can get one, Uh, And then we need policies which aim to contain or sort of hem in uh, Iran uh, in terms of its regional activities. So rather than trying to accomplish everything through an agreement, uh, which is very hard to do, I think you can aim for a limited but robust nuclear and perhaps missile agreement and then counter Iran's other activities uh, through your regional policies.
0: Um, We saw, speaking of the policy, we saw the point person, Brian Hook, who was in charge of the administration's Iran policy, just recently resigned. And Elliot Abrams has taken over for the U.S. Iran file, basically, who was involved in the Iran Contra uh, back in the day. Given his past, how do you think he will be enacting this Iran policy? How will this change under um, Abrams as it was under Brian Hook? And do you see him basically bringing the U.S. any closer to the prospect of a new deal?
1: Well, Elliot, who used to be my boss at the White House when I worked in the George W. Bush administration, uh, he's a very savvy official and he works actually very well, despite his sort of hawkish reputation, with U.S. allies uh, in Europe uh, and in the Middle East itself. Um, I think, though, the challenge he will face, like the challenge every U.S. official faces, is that President Trump himself often is the one really setting the direction for Uh, foreign policy. And that's uh, certainly the case with Iran. So President Trump has said he wants a deal with Iran. He wants this comprehensive deal with Iran. He wants it to be better than President Obama's deal. Um, And I think so that will remain, unless President Trump changes his mind, the objective that any Iran envoy for the United States has to pursue. And I think that maximum pressure will remain the policy under under a second term for President Trump. And so, you know, you're ultimately, as an envoy, constrained by the president's strategy, unless you can change his mind, unless you can convince him that there's a better path. Um, and you're working to sort of do the best you can with those constraints that you're given.
0: Mm-hmm. And speaking of the second term, let's assume if President Trump wins the election and if he stays in the White House, where do you see the U.S. and Iran go? You just said that you think maximum pressure will continue, but where do you think um, they will be as far as you know, sitting down together and getting close to a new
1: deal? Well, in a way, the decision will really rest with Iran. Uh, And I think that if President Trump wins a second term, Iran will face a very difficult choice because there's no doubt that the economic consequences of sanctions uh, and now uh, also of COVID-19, which has hit Iran very hard, are really devastating for Iran. And there's no doubt that Iran is uh, likely hoping that there'll be a change in U.S. policy that offers some relief to Iran. That's unlikely to happen under a second term of President Trump. And so Iran will have to decide whether to simply try to continue holding out, as they have been for the past four years, or to ultimately come back to the table to negotiations in hopes of obtaining sanctions relief from President Trump. My guess is if they choose the latter, if they choose to come back to negotiations, what you might see is you might first see a crisis, because I think that the Iranians would likely want to come back to the negotiating table with some leverage of their own, and often, oftentimes the way regimes like Iran's will create leverage—you know that we've seen this with North Korea many times—is by provoking, is by creating a crisis, um, which then sort of uh, consumes the negotiations, as it were.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, going back to the Security Council, the Trump administration, this was the first step in what seems to be the Iran policy for um, just these few months before the election was the extension on the arms embargo, which failed. But then there's also this... option of the snapback of sanctions that the U.S. is pursuing it seems to be the next step. Do you think the Europeans will come on board and will that be able to succeed at the, at the U.N. Security Council?
1: Well, I think we've never really faced a situation like this. And so we're in uncharted territory. Um, so it's hard to give clear answers, frankly. I think the arms embargo extension failed in large part because this issue of snapback was looming in the background. Uh, And the Trump administration knew that if the arms embargo extension failed, they could always resort uh, to this snapback, which probably diluted or or, uh, suppressed any efforts at compromise. I I think the problem with snapback um, is that the U.S. and our allies, frankly, disagree not only over the value of the JCPOA and whether maintaining is in our national security interests, but over U.S. standing to exercise snapback. And so you could have a situation where the U.S. comes to the council, well, you will have a situation where the U.S. comes to the Security Council and says, we are going to exercise snapback. And the other members, not just Russia and China, but our closest allies, the British, the French, the Germans say, you have no standing to do this. Uh, And so the outcome could be just a muddle where the U.S. says snapback happened. The other members say, no, it didn't. uh, And then ultimately, you have sort of a, a, a country by country fight uh, between the two sides to shape the behavior of other countries. Um, there are ways around this, and I think that's what you'll see now. I think you'll see a diplomatic fight uh, to try to circumvent this muddled outcome and produce a clear outcome one way or the other uh, by either side.
0: Mm-hmm. Just to explain to some of us, our viewers, um, the issue is that the United States has exited the nuclear deal. President Trump has pulled out of the nuclear deal. So the other members or uh, participants of the deal are basically telling the U.S. that you're not party to this deal to then claim that um, you can use uh, provisions or basically the snapback that was um, seen as part of the agreement. Um, let's now also talk about a potential Biden presidency. If Joe Biden wins the White House and um a Democrat comes back, how do you think U.S. policy towards Iran will change under a Biden president? Will he re-enter the nuclear deal, full compliance for compliance? Will he try to um, negotiate further than the deal? What what is your prospect for a Biden presidency and a policy towards Iran?
1: Well, my guess is that if Joe Biden had his uh, sort of wish He would like to not just come back to the JCPOA, but actually to try to renegotiate the deal, to try to strengthen the deal, perhaps using some of the economic leverage that President Trump has given him. Um, I think that that both reflects an understanding that, you know, perhaps the JCPOA did have some flaws, the sunset provisions of the JCPOA are coming very near now, um, as well as perhaps the political reality that he doesn't have bipartisan support. For going back into the deal. He has really only democratic support, and even that uh, frankly is not unanimous. However, I think that this is going to be sort of um, counterbalanced by number one, political pressure from the left to roll back President Trump's foreign policy legacy, including on Iran. And number two, the recognition that Iran frankly may not be willing to renegotiate or perhaps not even able to renegotiate because Iran has its its own presidential election in June of 2021. Uh, and so going back to the JCPOA may not be the sort of favorite outcome for the Biden administration if, if we have one, but it may ultimately be what happens.
0: Mm-hmm. And from now until the election in November, still so a few months left. Do you see any prospect for, um, you know, increased tensions between Iran and the U.S.? There's been this path towards increasing, increasing highlights of of events that we've no, um, witnessed, especially in the past year of of military conflict. Basically, the two sides at some point being on the brink of an of a war or a military conflict. Do you see anything? Happening between um, the two countries, Iran and the u s, until the time of the u s. election,
1: Well, it's certainly possible. You know, you always have uh, tension between the United States and Iran, um, and those tensions sometimes do blow up into into military incidents. Um so far, no wars, uh, at least uh, not in recent years. I think though, that probably from Iran's perspective, Iran has every incentive in the world, to keep things quiet, to avoid escalating with the United States, at least until the U.S. presidential election, Um, recognizing that, um, A, President Trump uh, has a political incentive, surely, to respond robustly to anything Iran might do, whether on the nuclear file or the regional file, and number two, that if Joe Biden wins, he's likely to have a different kind of regional policy, a different kind of policy towards Iran and towards the nuclear deal. Uh, And so I think you'd see right now uh, an effort to maintain a relative amount of quiet. But of course, you know, sometimes even uh, the best intentions uh, go awry and you have conflict, which is inadvertent.
0: And looking at Iran's uh, more more broadly as, as Iran's presence in the region, you talked about that, and it's one of the criticisms that you've had of the negotiations in the past. If we assume that negotiations would happen about Iran's regional policy and obviously a deal would be something more for more, you know, give and take. What would a deal, a good deal, on Iran's regional presence look from your viewpoint? Something that the Iranians would be able to live with and would also look good for the U.S.?
1: Well, I think that when we talk about Iran's regional policies you know, the the question of negotiations over the region often gets misunderstood, I think. I think what we don't want to see necessarily, again, is some kind of U.S.-Iran negotiation to try to determine the fates of third countries, like Iraq or Lebanon or Syria or Yemen. Those issues have to be decided by the people in those countries themselves, um, and it wouldn't be appropriate for the U.S. and Iran to sit down and try to decide them. I think what the United States would like from Iran, however, is an agreement to abide by what we regard as certain norms of international behavior. So for example, not um, providing uh, these very dangerous weapons to non-state proxies like the Houthis, like Hezbollah uh, and so forth, not interfering in the politics uh, of other countries, not, um, you know, obviously uh, Iran does this not through traditional channels like diplomacy uh, and so forth, but they do it by oftentimes creating and then funding Uh, proxies within the countries, whether it's Shia militias in Iraq, Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, and so forth. So I think it would be about those kinds of norms in an effort to uh, get Iran to agree to pull back uh, on some of those activities rather than uh, talks around resolving conflicts or managing conflicts.
0: Mm -hmm. And what would the U.S. be able to give? Because, you know, there's a fairly legitimate security concern in tehran when i speak to sources and it's not just the hardliners it's the moderates it's the reformists it's widely shared within the political system that um they're afraid there's there's this concern of the country's security what would um the the more for more the give or take look like that you think the u.s would be offered basically to iran on such negotiations
1: well, I think that's a very hard question, frankly, because what the United States has given in the past, including under the JCPOA, um, is nearly comprehensive sanctions relief. And that really is the same thing that the United States would have to offer in a more for more uh, negotiation. But having given it away already um, for, for less, essentially, from Iran, uh, the challenge the United States would have is how do you then try to get Iran to give more for that same comprehensive sanctions relief, uh, especially given that things like security assurances and so forth. Um, may not go very far in in actually sort of swaying Iran. Um, So I think that that's a challenging question. I think Iran would have to decide of its own accord, frankly, that having a different approach to the region, having a different approach to securing itself, uh, to pursuing its own security, um, was in its own interest. Um, That perhaps its activities in places like the Gulf or in Syria and so forth were needlessly creating conflict, not just with the United States, but with its neighbors. And so I think there would have to be some kind of regional component in this as well, um, where rather than just the US and Iran talking, um, perhaps you had a broader regional security aspect, where you had countries in the region uh, also coming to Tehran saying, um, with their concerns, um, and perhaps having a kind of discussion uh, with Iran. Uh, I think all of this depends, again, on Iran making a decision about uh, its own strategy uh, and what's best for its own security.
0: Mm-hmm. And as far as the region, we just saw uh, basically a historic announcement, at least, of a normalization of ties between the United Arab Emirates and Israel, even though they've had um unofficial relations in the past, but this is basically a public um, announcement of the normalization of ties. How much of that do you think is related to Iran, to these two countries basically trying to get closer to um, as allies basically against Iran? And how do you think it's going to affect the regional dynamics?
1: Well, I think that It should be a wake up call for Iran, because I think it is to a great extent about Iran. I think that what we've seen in the last 20 years, especially, uh, is um, increasingly Israel, the Gulf Arab states, Egypt, Jordan, have moved closer together in terms of their assessment of threats. And I think the number one threat they they all feel as though they face is from Iran. Um, They have other threats, of course, terrorism, uh, political Islam and so forth. But I think Iran is the number one threat. And so Iran, which really has no friends in the region other than perhaps some proxies, uh, maybe the Assad regime, uh, is pushing its neighbors together, neighbors that previously were not friends. uh, Iran has helped to push together. And so this should, again, be a wake-up call for for those making regional and foreign policy decisions uh, inside Iran. How will it affect the region? I think that this is actually more effect than cause. Uh, As I said, I think that what we're seeing is the result of the regional dynamics of the past 20 years, but if anything, will only open up greater avenues for cooperation between Israel and the UAE, and then perhaps also more broadly between Israel and the Gulf states. Um, And that, again, uh, will make them perhaps more effective in countering what we see Iran doing in places like Yemen and Syria uh, and Lebanon. Um, So again, I think this will add to Iran's isolation in the region.
0: And speaking of Israel, we know Prime Minister Netanyahu was one of the main opponents of the nuclear deal with Iran under the Obama administration. And he was very vocal about it. He wasn't shy about hiding his um, views. What do you think or how will he basically approach a potential outreach to Iran under a second uh, Trump term or negotiations or the prospects of a new deal?
1: Well, it's a good question. And I think it'll depend on what that outreach looks like. And it might look very different under a second term of President Trump than it would, say, under a a Biden administration. Um, But I think there's no doubt that Israel considers really the major threat that it faces in the region, um, the prospect of Iran gaining a nuclear weapon. And so I think you can expect, once again, if there are nuclear negotiations, very heavy sort of outreach and lobbying from Israel um, to ensure that whatever deal is reached, if a deal is reached, Uh, is one which, um, from their point of view, puts that threat further away. I I think the concern that the Israelis had about the JCPOA, and of course there wasn't one opinion in Israel, the opinion was split in Israel, but the concern that Prime Minister Netanyahu had was that the JCPOA really gave Iran a pathway to ultimately developing nuclear weapons, maybe not immediately, but maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road, Um, and to do so in a way which was essentially legitimized by the international community, Um, I think that he'll express the same views again. I think any other Israeli prime minister would probably express the same views, maybe using different tactics or words. um, But ultimately, I think that concern is one which is widely shared in Israel. And do
0: you think it would be the same under a Biden presidency or would it be more the way that he approached the Obama negotiations with Iran?
1: It's hard to say. You know, I think that, um, obviously, President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu had a poor relationship even as the JCPOA negotiations started. And so their, their interactions over Iran became quite adversarial in a way which I think was bad for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Um, with President Trump, I think that would obviously look different because President Trump has tried very hard to be close to Israel. I, I think it might also look very different under a Biden presidency because I think Uh, from his background and from his experience as a policymaker, Joe Biden has shown himself to probably be closer to Israel uh, than President Obama was. Um, But certainly Joe Biden has had his disagreements with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, Biden would probably pursue a different kind of nuclear agreement or a different kind of agreement with Iran than President Trump would. Uh, And so it would likely be a more contentious process uh, between Biden and Netanyahu than it would be under Trump uh, and Netanyahu.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Syria. You co-chaired the Syria study group that provided Congress an assessment of the situation in, in the country and also made recommendations for U.S. policy. And the final report by this group was published last September. Tell us about the group and the findings of your report.
1: Well, the group was a bipartisan group that was commissioned by Congress. So its members were appointed by Congress Um, I was the Republican co-chair, and my colleague from the Washington Institute, actually, Dana Struhl, was the Democratic co-chair. And the point was essentially like the Iraq study group before us, to review what was at stake for the United States in Syria, and to give recommendations for U.S. policy in Syria. And one of our chief aims, frankly, was to convince or to make the case for a U.S. audience that, in fact, U.S. interests were at stake in Syria, that this wasn't a sort of distraction, that this wasn't something um, which was pointless, but in fact was something um, that had an impact on U.S. security, on our allies' security in Europe and in the region, and was worth putting some resources into. Um, But ultimately, our finding was that U.S. ambitions were very high, but the level of resources and attention from policymakers did not come close to really matching those ambitions. And so what our report recommended was um, both a kind of Um, perhaps a recalibration of American objectives um, to objectives that were more realistic uh, over the short and medium term, but also a greater commitment of resources and a greater commitment of policymaker attention to the Syria problem. And unfortunately, that's not what we've seen. We have seen U.S. resources and attention both continue to dwindle. um, And it's no surprise that therefore the situation in Syria has really not improved, unfortunately, since September when we put out that report. Um, And I think it's a shame both for U.S. interests, but also, frankly, for the people of Syria and the region who have suffered so much.
0: Mm -hmm. And um, just beyond Syria, if you want to look at the Trump administration's regional policy, not just towards Iran, we talked about Iran and also a little bit Syria, what are the main criticisms or the shortcomings of the regional policy that you see in this administration?
1: Well, I think if you're going to criticize um, President Trump's regional policy, it would ironically be similar to the criticism that one might have had under the Obama administration, which is that the U.S. has increasingly um, disengaged from the the Middle East strategically. And that's partly because we are trying to make this shift towards Asia, towards um, competition with China, with Russia. It's partly because I think there is some fatigue in dealing with the Middle East because of the Iraq war, because of Afghanistan and the way those have simply ground on um, without, I think, a lot of uh, clear benefits for the United States. Um, But what we haven't really seen yet is we haven't really seen a new U.S. strategy in the region, which aims to still safeguard our interests, um, but perhaps with a more realistic commitment of resources. We've seen sort of more haphazard policymaking. I think what we can say, frankly, in favor of President Trump, is that he has been um, more reluctant than his predecessors to engage in military conflicts in the region, and yet has recently especially shown himself willing to use a, multi, a sort of a variety, let's say, of tools, both economic sanctions, uh, military force, yes, obviously, um, but also now diplomacy and bringing the UAE and Israel together. Uh, and so I think in, in a way it's a, it's a mixed track record. You've seen some successes, you've seen him avoid some mistakes, But what we don't see yet, and I think what our allies in the region especially are waiting for, is what is the new American strategy in the region to replace um, that kind of overcommitment which we had shown in the past.
0: And finally, I want to ask you a more personal question. We know Joe Biden has picked Kamala Harris as his uh, vice president for the race, and she is of Indian heritage. You are also of Indian heritage. Now, you might not agree Uh, with a lot of her politics. But I want to ask you how you feel about someone, a daughter of immigrants, being picked for a presidential ticket. It's fairly historic. And what that tells you about America?
1: Well, I think it's wonderful to see. And I think it's wonderful, less because she's Indian, of course, that's, uh, for me, very good to see. Um, But of course, the Indian American community is politically quite diverse. Uh, You have some people who uh, support President Trump enthusiastically. Others who are much more to the left, um, and so in a way, the Indian community is is just like the rest of the country in that regard. But what I especially appreciate about someone like Kamala Harris um, ascending to this position is that she is the daughter of immigrants, and it shows that for all of our faults, for all of our flaws, the United States is really still a place where anybody, I think, can succeed. Um, where the daughter of immigrants can become the candidate for the vice presidency. Um, she's, of course, already quite successful as a senator, as a prosecutor, and so forth. But whether you're on the right or whether you're on the left, I think that's something to celebrate about the United States. Uh, and it's something that I hope will continue to be the case and something that I hope, frankly, will underscore for Americans the value of our openness to the world and our openness to immigrants uh, and our, our our sort of role as the place where uh, anyone in the world can come uh, and share in Uh, success and share an opportunity um, and uh, make something of themselves.
0: Well, on that note, Michael, thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you. That was Michael Singh, Managing Director at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast apps and rate and review the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast, where you can send us messages with your comments and ideas about future guests and if you want us to ask questions of the guests that are upcoming. Until next time, goodbye.